often have to face additional hardships because they are Christians. And that was certainly the case in 95 A.D. when the church was actually being persecuted by the government. As we've already seen, the apostles had all been martyred except for John, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. While there, however, he was given a series of visions that were intended to give him and the believers back on the mainland hope. Hope that all was not lost, even though things looked bad at the present and things were going to get worse. And contrary to common thinking, the answer to a difficult today is not a Pollyanna or little orphan Annie assertion that things will get better tomorrow. We must be realistic. And we must realistically face the possibility that tomorrow may actually be worse than today. Doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? But it's true. What gives us the strength to face today and tomorrow is the assurance that God is still on his throne and that victory is certain as long as we remain faithful to the death-conquering, risen Lamb of God. That is the message of Revelation. In chapter 5, we watched as the Lamb took from the hand of God the scroll that contained an outline of the future. And this morning we come to the opening of that scroll. We will watch as the first six seals are broken, releasing visions that both frighten us and give us great confidence as we face the future. Let's see what happened as the first four seals were broken. We're in Revelation chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another. And with a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given over to them over a fourth of the earth to kill 
with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Well, you have just met the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. On the breaking of the first four seals, four horsemen come forth at the command of the cherubim, each riding a horse of a different color. The rider on the white horse had a bow and a crown and went out conquering and to conquer. The rider on the red horse had a sword and took away peace from the earth. The rider on the black horse had a pair of scales and rationed out the necessities of life while the luxuries were in abundance. And the rider on the ashen, or more accurately, pale green horse, was death itself, who came forth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now, these visions themselves are very clear. Everyone can see the four horsemen. The problem comes when we try to understand their symbolism. And the heart of the debate centers on the rider on the white horse. He's been identified as everyone from Christ himself to a Parthian cavalryman to the Antichrist. And rather than draw you into a debate you can pursue on your own, I'm simply going to present my conclusion on the matter, and I'm convinced the writer represents Christ. Christ was presented in the fifth chapter as the one who has overcome. And here the rider on the white horse is seen as the conqueror. The same word is being used. Time and again in Revelation, Christ is presented as the one who conquers, who overcomes, who brings victory. In fact, the conquering Christ is the theme of Revelation. So our first thought, when given the picture of a conqueror, should be of Christ. And the thought is reinforced by a white horse, the bow, the crown. In Habakkuk 3, 8 and 9, we see the Lord pictured riding on a horse with a bow made bare, ready for battle. And in Revelation 19, we're going to see Christ pictured on a white horse wearing many crowns or diadems. The symbolism, I believe, is therefore obvious. If you can harmonize the idea of Christ riding in league with those who are on the red, black, and pale green horse. Now, many commentators apparently can't do that. So they discard the idea of the rider on the white horse as being Christ. But William Hendrickson, the author of More Than Conquerors, a commentary on Revelation written in 1939 and still in print today, has shown that this can indeed be done. And by doing so, I believe he makes the best sense of the entire sixth chapter. If the rider on the white horse is the conquering Christ, then this vision begins with a picture of Christ coming as the conqueror of sin and death, as Savior of mankind. And the remaining riders picture what follows his coming into the world as conqueror. The rider on the red horse would then represent a reaction to the work of the first rider. And what reaction should we expect? Well, 
the one the Christians were experiencing. In Matthew 10:34, Jesus said, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He then went on to say how that even households would be divided by the gospel. You know, light and darkness cannot coexist. One is constantly trying to extinguish the other, and the same is true of good and evil. The gospel frees men to be good. But evil is not going to stand for it. It's going to react. And the reaction, Jesus said, would be a sword. A sword that, at least for the moment, takes away peace. And that's exactly what we see at the breaking of the second seal. And the second living creature says, come, a red horse gallops forth. The rider has a sword, and he's given the right to take away peace. From the world. He encourages men to slay one another. Now, many commentators believe this writer pictures warfare in general, but I don't think so. The word used for slay here is not the ordinary word John uses to indicate killing or warfare. It's a word he uses to describe the slaughter of Christ as a sacrificial lamb and of Christian martyrs. And the word translated sword is not the one for the kind of swords used in battle, but of daggers and sacrificial knives. So the picture here seems to be one of religious persecution, not warfare in general. Wherever Christ goes conquering, the sword of persecution follows. That's what the Christians in Asia Minor in 95 A.D. were experiencing, and what Christians down through the ages have found to be true when the gospel is introduced into non-Christian cultures. But that's not the only kind of persecution that follows the advance of the gospel. Seldom are great numbers of converts martyred. Usually it's just the leaders. Other types of persecution and discrimination, however, do affect vast numbers of believers. And one of the most prevalent is economic persecution. That's what's pictured by the third rider. At the command, come, a rider on a black horse comes forth carrying a pair of scales or a balance. And a voice is heard saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, a denarius was equal to a day's pay. And one quart, or one measure of grain, was the average daily consumption of one person. So what we have here is a condition where a working father is given the choice of providing enough wheat for himself or enough barley, which was a less desirable grain, for a small family. But nothing more. Now, the price for this grain is ridiculously high, but it doesn't approach famine prices. And the voice further adds, do not harm the oil and the wine. Apparently, the luxuries of life were still available to those who could afford them. So what we have pictured here isn't a general famine, but economic discrimination against one segment of society, like we found in Thyatira. The city, you may recall, was dominated by trade guilds that met in pagan temples. The union meetings generally degenerated into drunken, immoral celebrations in honor of the guild's pagan deity, and the Christians who refused to participate in such were pretty much shut out of the business community. 
We're also going to discover in Revelation 13 that those who did not have a mark of participation in emperor worship on their hand or forehead were not allowed to buy or sell. Economic persecution was indeed the plight of many Christians. And the same, I believe, is true today. How many Christians have been passed over for promotion because their convictions wouldn't allow them to bend the rules? Or how many have been ostracized from the workplace because they wouldn't support extreme union activity? What we have pictured by the second and third writers are specific acts of persecution and discrimination that Christians should expect just because they're Christians. But that's not the end of a Christian's woes. For Christians, like everyone else in the world, are subject to the universal woes of mankind, woes that are the natural consequences of living in a fallen world. And those woes are pictured by the fourth writer. When the fourth seal was broken, a fourth living creature said, Come, and a pale green horse came forth, bearing on its back death personified. Following behind death, was Hades, the grave, collecting the dead for safekeeping until Judgment Day. This is a grim picture indeed, but one that has to be faced by everyone, including Christians. Unless, of course, Christ returns before death comes to them. Now, it is true that the sting of death has been removed for believers because death is not the end. Our hope transcends the grave. But the fact remains we still have to face death. And death is seldom pleasant. In fact, in most cultures throughout history, it's often a very violent experience brought on by sword. And it is a battle sword that is pictured here. By the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. These are the universal woes of mankind, and Christians are not exempt from them. So what we have portrayed by the four horsemen is the coming of Christ and the woes that follow. Now, again, that's a pretty dismal picture, but it's a realistic one. I realize some have been led to believe that a Christian should expect nothing but health, wealth, and happiness. But that's not what our Lord said, nor what the Bible teaches. Jesus made the demands of discipleship very clear to those who said they wanted to follow him. And he's promised to us that we will not be treated any better than he was. And they crucified him. So we shouldn't be surprised when the going gets rough after becoming a Christian. In fact, we should be surprised if it doesn't. If the trials don't come, we don't, we don't get that tempering, that testing of our faith that makes us strong. It's the trials that make us rely all the more on our Lord and teach us to walk by faith, not by sight. So God allows these things to happen to us. It's just Christ, the first rider, was given a crown, so the other riders were given the authority to do what they did. The second rider was granted the right to take away peace and was given the sacrificial knife. The decree that followed the arrival of the third rider came from the center of the four living creatures, 
And what was at the center of the four creatures? The throne of God. And to the fourth rider was given the authority to kill by sword, famine, pestilence, or wild beast. By violent means, one-fourth of the world. So God is the one who gave these riders the authority. Note, however, that it's not unlimited authority. God set limits on what they could do. One-fourth of the earth is a lot, but it's not all of it, not even most of it. God is still in control. Christians who are undergoing religious persecution or who are just enduring the universal woes of life need to be reminded that these things aren't to be unexpected. And by no means should they assume God has lost control when tragedy befalls them. These things are not only allowed by God, they are actually authorized by him. They're part of his plan to perfect his people. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to like it. Or that we have to suffer in silence. We can and should cry out to God. The martyrs in John's vision did. Let's read on. Verses 9 through 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. When the fifth seal was broken, John was given a vision of an altar in heaven. And underneath the altar, where blood had been poured out on the earthly altar, were the souls of the martyrs, those who had been slain, who had been slain by the rider on the red horse. They had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they were crying out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, we refrain from avenging our death? Now some, far removed from martyrdom, have criticized them for crying out for vengeance. But more than personal vengeance is at stake here. Those represented had faithfully maintained the testimony concerning the true nature of God and his righteousness. And those who had killed them had no doubt assumed the martyrs were wrong. That they had died for some kind of misguided fanaticism. Not for the truth. The only way God's character could be ultimately vindicated would be for him to personally act. And someday he would. Someday those who had martyred the Christians would know they had been wrong. The martyrs were just anxious for that day to get here. They wanted all to know that they had not died mistaken and that God was indeed a God of justice and truth. But that time wasn't here yet. 
So the martyrs were given white robes to assure them of their acceptability before God and told to be patient, to rest a little while longer. Besides, they weren't going to be the last to give up their lives for the faith. Many more were going to be martyred. Those who had been martyred under the reign of Nero were about to be joined by those who were being martyred under the reign of Domitian. And even after that, until all who would be needed to fulfill the purposes of God had died, martyrdom would continue. So the Christians living in John's day, as well as Christians living today, should not be shocked when lives are taken for the sake of the gospel and injustice seems to have the upper hand. We've been told it'll happen. But we've also been told what the final outcome will be. And this we see as the sixth seal is broken. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? This is unmistakably a vision of the second coming of Christ. In Mark chapter 13, it's described this way. But in those days, after that tribulation, after a time of persecution, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. On that day, God's justice will be fully vindicated. And all men who have fought against the kingdom of God will cry out for the mountains and rocks to fall on them in the hopes that they'll be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. But the work of justice will be done. And none who deserve to be punished will escape. The cries of the martyrs will finally be silenced and the whole universe will know that Jesus is Lord. That is the message of Revelation. That is the assurance John is to deliver to the persecuted saints in Asia Minor and the assurance that Christians of every age need to hear. And that, I'm convinced, is the message we find in the sixth chapter of Revelation. Now, some do question that understanding of this vision because we're only in the sixth chapter. 
And there are 16 chapters to go. You know, how could it be at the end of the story before the story ends? Now, their argument would be valid if the revelation simply presented one continuous vision, one continuing storyline. But there are solid indicators that that is not the case. In fact, as we study through Revelation, we're going to see vision after vision that seems to be saying basically the same thing. Over and over again, we're going to see the coming of the gospel and reactions against the gospel. And then how Christ is victor over all opposition. That is the truth. The early Christians needed to see. And the truth we need to see. And Revelation shows it to us over and over again. In fact, as Hendrickson makes clear, it tells us the same story seven times. Each time giving us a slightly different perspective or emphasis on the same message. A message that God once so burned into our minds by the progressive parallelism of the visions that nothing can shake us. That message is that no matter how bad things look, God is in control. Christ will win the spiritual battles being played out in heaven and on earth. And we who are faithful to him will reign with him forever and ever. Things may be tough now, but we have every assurance that things will be made right when we all get to heaven. Let's celebrate 